VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Trust your kids. They can do a lot more than you ever expected them to do if you trust them. It's amazing. You believe in them, I tell you, they'll believe in themselves and they'll do incredible things. Hello and welcome to your bonus Danny in the Valley pod. This weekend, we're running a feature in the newspaper on Esther Wojcicki, who may be the most famous mother in Silicon Valley. She has three daughters, Susan, who was employee number 16 at Google and for the past five years has run a little website called YouTube. Anne, who's her youngest daughter, founded 23andMe, which is the in-home genetics testing company, of course. And then their, her middle daughter, Janet, is a professor of epidemiology at UC San Francisco. So the obvious question is, how did she end up raising three wildly successful women? who together are worth about a billion dollars. Well, you're about to find out. Esther, who is 78, is also very accomplished in her own right. She's a very well-known high school journalism teacher whose methods, a lot of which chime with how she raised her daughters, have been nationally recognized. She talks to CEOs who ask her how, you know, ask her for tips for their own workforce, etc. And now she's written a book. And it's called How to Raise Successful People, which I have read. If you are a parent or thinking of becoming one or just generally interested in humans and what makes them work or not work, I recommend it. It's really interesting and there's lots of very useful nuggets in there. Last month, on a Sunday afternoon, I drove over to her house in Palo Alto. It's actually on Stanford's campus to talk all about it. It feels like your approach was pretty organic. You kind of looked back at it and were like, well, actually, I can kind of systematize this in certain ways or kind of categorize it. You got it. It was organic because I didn't 
have any advice or any books I could read out there that were helping me lead the way. So I had to develop it myself. And I did it just on gut reaction, what seemed to work. I'm lucky because after I did it, I looked at the research, and the research confirms everything that I did. It sounded like your upbringing was a big imprint on guiding you as an adult, as a parent, as a teacher. I came from an Orthodox Jewish family. My upbringing was as a girl in in a Jewish family. One of the things that they do is that girls are prepared to be homemakers and boys are prepared for the world. And I decided as a child, I didn't like that. I wanted to be part of the world. Yeah. So even though I had a very controlling father, I decided I was going to do that. And that was unfortunately based on a tragedy that happened to me when I was 10 years old. And I didn't realize the impact of that tragedy, actually. It was subconscious. But my brother, David, who was 18 months old at the time, was sitting on the floor in the kitchen, and he opened a bottle of aspirin and ate it. I don't know how he could have done that, because it tastes kind of awful, but Mm. he did. And then my mother, being an immigrant, she didn't really know what to do. So she called the doctor, and I think the doctor did not listen You know, they just gave a perfunctory answer. Oh, yeah, just put him to bed and let's see how he is in a couple of hours. So she took that to heart. She's like, the doctor said, put him to bed. So I put him to bed. And, of course, in a couple of hours, he was violently ill. We went from hospital to hospital trying to get him admitted. And nobody would take him because of lack of proof of payment. I mean, this was a tragedy that impacted Mm. my life. Because what I learned from that, and I didn't even know I learned it at the time. And he passed away that day. He passed away at the fourth hospital. What I learned that day is you don't trust people in authority, no matter what their titles are. You have to think for yourself. To this day, I regret that my mom didn't think for herself. And so what that made me do from then on is I always questioned everything. And I think I passed that down to my daughters because they do question everything also. I think that's one of the one of the ideas behind 23andMe, for example. Anne was questioning, is the medical system really working in my favor? Mm. Or should I be in charge of my own medical care? And should I know more about my body? The question is, who is more concerned about my body, me or the doctor? And she decided me. Yeah. And so this, the approach, can you give a kind of a a sense of what the kind of the key components of it are to teaching. To teaching. Parenting. parenting. I mean, it's all kind of, it feels like it's basically the same. It is. It's all summarized in this acronym, TRIC. And I made this up. I did it like 10 minutes before I had to give a talk. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out it worked. Yeah. And TRIC stands for trust, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And I say that belongs in your family. It belongs between you and your spouse. It belongs between you and your child. And it belongs in the classroom. And it belongs in the workplace. Because especially when the child is first starting out, you want that child to feel confident. And the way they feel confident is if you trust them, they trust themselves. They believe in themselves. And the more you do for that child 
the less confident they are in themselves. So the more you plow. The more plowing you do, the more plowing they expect. And do you see that as a teacher, like a kind of evolution or, I don't know, devolution of kids and their own abilities or their own confidence or, you know, whatever you want to call it? I see that as a teacher all the time. And that's one of the things that I do in class. I let them clear the way. I let them do the job. So I use journalism as a platform to teach these skills. So I'm dealing with 14 and 15-year-olds who are going out into the world and getting information, Mm. sensitive information, and then they have to make sure they get that information right. I trust them to get that information right. And then they have to write it up in a way that other people can understand it. So the first thing you do when you write that up is you have to figure out what's the most important thing that you just got. Get a lot of information. So I trust them to come up with the main point. And when in doing this repeatedly, they write stories all the time. They begin to believe in themselves because they're dealing with the real world. And they're exercising these skills on a regular basis. It's so critical. In other words, I'm not standing in front of the class telling them what to think all the time. And so when you do that initially, is it a kind of like, uh, okay, this Let is weird. Let me tell you how it is in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so in the beginning, when they first come into beginning journalism, they sit there very politely and wait for me to tell them what to do because that's the way they've been trained. So in the beginning, I cooperate. The first assignment I have them do, it's called a personality feature, and I have them interview each other and then write a personality feature about each other. And so that's just the beginning. One of the hardest things for them to do is figure out what's interesting about the other person. It's like, I promise you, every single person is interesting, and you have to find out. And I said, it isn't where they were born or the day they were born. So you cannot start your story with so-and-so was born on this day. And it's like, no, unless they were born in the back of a taxi or in an airplane, it is not interesting. So that's how I start. And then gradually what I do is I back up and give them more responsibility. So they're pretty freaked out in the beginning, I can tell you. Because I also give them, I tell them who to interview. But the next time... They have to go around and interview. It's kind of a question man thing. Mm -hmm. They have to interview 30 people on campus, and it cannot be your friend. Really? Yes. And then you have to first develop the question that Mm -hmm. you're going to ask them, and then you have to ask that question. And you have to write it down. And I'll tell you, initially, they are terrified of talking to anyone that they don't know. They have this... 30 people that they have to interview, and then they have to take, of those 30, they have to pick the top 10. And then they have to make sure that they've gotten the information correct, including their name, and if they've got a title, Hmm. what is their title, if they're a grade, what grade level they are. That's what journalism's all about. You have to gather the information. You've got to get it right. And then they go from there to, to writing a story, a news story, Usually I do it at a time when there's something happening on campus. They have to go and, again, interview people, collect information, write it up. And in the beginning, a lot of kids get this wrong. I teach also the journalistic ethics and the laws of the press. It's like 
you know, what is libel, guys? Let me tell you how about how important that is. You cannot hurt another person's reputation. You have to be really careful. And you have to get multiple sources. In learning this, they become empowered, much more right. self-confident. So if you're as a parent, you want to also give your kids an opportunity to be a participant in the family and not just be somebody that is told what to do all the time and yeah. served. You're not the servant. Well, it's funny. I was reading your book and we have, as I mentioned, a two and a half, almost two and a half year old. And he started stalling before bedtime. And one of the things he says, I want water. I need water. He actually says, I need water. <laughs> and then I found myself going downstairs to get him a cup of water. But then I was like, you know what? If he really wants it, he can get it. And so I'm setting up like a whole little station for him to like his little cup and he can go down there and get it. But yes, it, it does feel like it's not death by a thousand cuts, but there's just like all these little gradual, little incremental things. It's absolutely right. Add up. Yes. Children do what they see you do, not what you say. So the way that you react is the way they copy it. They're not even aware that they're copying. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the book was about money. Oh, yes. And in the context of your family and raising your girls, can you talk a little bit about the approach to money and kind of shopping and just the whole that whole sense of value and how you approach that? So money was a limited resource, and it is a limited resource in many families. And I grew up with no money. So when I had, finally had some money... I wanted to make sure that I took care of that money and yeah. I used it in occasions when I needed to use it. So with my kids, I made sure that they used money in a careful way. So one of the things that we did on a regular basis is we cut out coupons. As a matter of fact, Anne became the coupon queen. She organized the coupons in alphabetical order. So when she went to the store, I think the cashier probably was like, oh no, not that girl again. But I also taught them the value of saving. You know, don't buy something today that you just just an impulse purchase. Wait and see what it is that you really need and mm. take care of the things that you already have. I also did a lot of, when they were little, I made a lot of things. So I had a sewing machine and I made big things because actually it turns out they're really easy to make right. you know bedspreads or you know pillowcases or I even made drapes and so my kids saw me doing that being very frugal so they and did also making a scene if necessary of misadvertising etc so I always felt like I was protecting the consumer <laughs> does you your know, job <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I did this but I felt it was my job and so if we went to a store, you know, we collected the coupons, right? Mm -hmm. And we'd look at the ads and so forth. And if we went to the store with the advertisement, right? And then the item that we went to buy was being sold at a different price. I somehow felt it was my responsibility to tell the store that this is, you know, this is bad. It's not just bad for me, that one consumer, but it's bad for everybody because we're all coming into the store to buy this for this price yeah. and you're misrepresenting it. So actually, it was pretty funny because my daughters would like hide. They're like, ah, oh, mom's at it again, you know? But I noticed that more and more the, the stores were, you know, honoring the prices they advertised. Who knows? Maybe I had an impact. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so when you were raising your girls, it was the idea, was the goal, these humans are going to be extremely accomplished. I need them to be, you're not a tiger mom, because I know you had a whole no, debate not, with Miss yeah. Tiger Mom, yeah. which we can talk about. But was, the, was that the goal? Was that the guiding light? Like, how do I make these into extraordinary people at the top of their respective fields? I never thought that, ever. My goal when they were growing up is I wanted them to be independent and think for themselves. Remember that tragedy I had? Mm -hmm. I didn't ever want them to get trapped into any kind of tragedy like that. So I wanted them to challenge everything that they were learning to make sure that they really thought it was the right thing. And I wanted them to be able to earn a good living, have a house, have clothes to wear, have enough food. I just wanted them to be comfortable. I never ever thought that they would be where they are today. And I'm, of course, thrilled that they're there, but that was not my goal. Right. I mean, it's, it was almost like a gut reaction. The same thing cannot happen to them that happened to my family, and my, my poor yeah. mother never recovered from that tragedy. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine. There's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. to talk about kind of the coddling of children and why that's a bad thing. But... There's the snowplow analogy, but there's also the helicopter. Right. So the helicopter parent hovers. So they let the kid, they're, you're on the road, right? Mm -hmm. But they want to make sure that you do it all right. So they hover and make sure, oh, you didn't understand that? Let me see if I can help you. Or, you know, you, you did that problem wrong? Oh, let me tell you how to yeah. do it right. Or you didn't buy the right dress? Let's go back to the store together. And... So that's the helicopter parent. The snowplow parent, they just clear the way, make sure there's no problems in advance. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I'm going to make sure you're signed up for all the right classes. I'll go down to the school, make sure that you've got all the right teachers and the right classes. You're taking what? Physics? Oh, well, we're going to have to get you a tutor right away. You not, might not have any problems, but you still need the tutor. The snowplow parent is really just clearing the road in advance. Right. And a lot of... A lot of parents are doing that. Like I say, it is really disempowering for your kids. Yeah. Well, it does feel like it's all about basically trying to avoid failure. So it's just the opposite of my class, where I get let them write up everything they've come across, right? They collected all this facts and stuff about, I don't know, their news story, and now they're going to write it up. And I can tell you, the first run is really terrible. Looks awful. They start with the wrong yeah. thing and everything. So I never give them a grade until they're done. So I was like, oh, you got this wrong. Let's see if you can do it again. And I edit it, and then uh, they redo it. And sometimes kids have to redo it like 10 times. Yeah. And then they get a grade, an A. And so they're like, oh, I know how to write news stories. So then they feel empowered. And they're, but they're failing on each one of those versions. Yeah. It's an idea of like, well, I can fail, but then I can get up again and do it again. Or the same thing, you know, they publish all the um, publications with Adobe, InDesign, mm. InDesign, Photoshop, Illustrator, yeah. Premiere, all those. And I'll tell you, they make a lot of mistakes when they're first doing it. You should see how some of those layouts look. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but they redo them. And they take a lot of risk, a lot of risk when they do those. They're graphically beautiful when they're finally done. But they didn't start that way. Yeah. 
So it's a metaphor, you know, for, for life. It's like we start, we try this, it didn't work, or we'll just do it again. And that's yeah. one of the things I try to instill in all the students. And the whole program does. So there's six other teachers. I have six other um, journalism teachers, teachers, and they have follow the same philosophy. We all do the same thing. Right. Well, it's right. not just tied to me. Any teacher can do it. Yeah. And it does feel it's about kind of, again, going back to like how you raised your, your girls, just giving them way more credit than most people would assume you can give young people. That's exactly it. Trust your kids. They can do a lot more than you ever expected them to do if you trust them. It's amazing. They rise to the occasion. They rise to the occasion. You believe in them, I tell you, they'll believe in themselves and they'll do incredible things. I think most of us are fearful on behalf of our kids. We're like, oh, I tried that myself. I know I, it was really hard. Let me help you. Yeah. Stop doing that. <laughs> Stop now. <laughs> Recently, I did a piece. I went to the, a couple Waldorf schools. You know, there's parts of it that are a bit interesting. Yes. But the idea that the overarching idea of like trying to stoke creativity and independence and all these things, curiosity, I think is really interesting given just that one of the guys at the, at the, um, I think he, I can't remember what his um, title is. I think he might be president of the board or whatever. He works at Microsoft and he said, there's something like 800 coding languages today. Yes. He's like, by the time these kids are actually going out into the world, they might all be changed. They might all be wiped away by artificial intelligence, whatever. Right. But the world is changing at a pretty dramatic rate. Right. So why are we trying to teach people to memorize? I agree. We, I don't. I never, that's one of the, my number one principles. Do not teach kids to memorize. They've got the whole thing in their pocket, in that phone. Teach them to look it up. They need to be aware of what's out there, but they mm. don't need to memorize. Teach them how to get information, how to research, how to be lifelong learners. And that's yeah. what I'm teaching. The memorization Statistics show that even if you memorize something, after two weeks, you only remember 32%. And do you ever talk to Susan about tech and schools or tech and young people and what it's doing to young people and kind of, I came across a lot of this research doing this piece on Waldorf around child and adolescent development, whether it's online bullying or just living via your phone and doing less kind of actual living, etc. Um, it does feel like it's kind of stunting growth in many ways. So my theory, I have pretty strong feelings on this. Okay. My theory is that the phone can be very addicting. And there's a lot of products in life that can be addicting. And what we need to do is teach kids early on how to use their phone correctly how to give themselves, how to program themselves so that they don't overuse the phone. We don't teach that. Here's the same thing. We're trying to control them. So what do we do? We take their phone away. Mm -hmm. What are we teaching them then? So how do you teach them to have self-control? You give them opportunities for self-control. For example, you collaborate. That's part of my trick, right? Mm -hmm. So you say... You explain to them with the phone. So nobody should be on their phone a long time. 
And, you know, it's bad for you, bad for your brain, bad for everybody. So what we need to do is figure out how much time you're going to be on the phone. Let's do it together. Mm-hmm. Let's collaborate. And so we're picking out maybe two hours a day that you're going to be on the phone. And then those two hours, you get to control one hour of that. And then it's a collaboration, so I get to control the other hour. So I will pick what you do one hour. You pick what you do the other hour. And after that, we want you to just interact, play, be with your friends, do that, whatever. It's amazing what will happen when they are making the decision. They are not put in a position of making a decision. They're put in a position where they are told what to do. Their phone is confiscated. So when you confiscate it, it becomes like the forbidden fruit. Yeah. And you want it even more. And you hide things. And then you, then you learn how to hide and how to lie and how to cheat and all that stuff. So I think that the schools actually should teach that early on. Because in like France, I think they've banned them. They banned them. I think that's a terrible mistake. That shows you have no belief in the kids being able to have any self-control. They can learn self-control early on if you teach it to them. Just imagine, look, at they can learn to ski early, right? Swim early, ride a bike early. They do, as a matter of fact, kids that learn to ride bikes and ski and swim early, they become champions. Try learning to ski when you're 22. Oh, I know. Forget that. Let's give them an opportunity to learn how to do some self-control. So if the teacher wanted to, okay, like this hour we're going to learn how to use our phones. And this is what we're going to do. How do you search? You know, how do you be respectful? No, you don't have phones at dinner. No, you don't have phones if you're having a meeting with a friend. Are we teaching this anywhere? I haven't seen it. So I've seen what happens with parents at the park. The kids all play on the equipment. And what are the parents doing? On their phone. So what does that say to the kids? They're like, during leisure time, I get to be on my phone. Remember? Kids do what they see you do, not what they say, what you say. Right. So we need to do a better job of modeling ourselves, and we need to implement these rules that we want collaboratively. And it works. So I was talking with my wife about some of the stuff in the book. A lot of it's common sense, but also a lot of it seems like... um work for example path of least resistance you're traveling or whatever hand a child a ipad with some cartoons on it and be like oh my god thank you i need to go get a coffee or relax or whatever whereas what you're talking about is much more kind of day in day out just deliberate thought out action and a lot of people are just like i'm too tired i'm too tired to do that you know that's an, that's an interesting thing you brought up about being in the car with a mm. phone. So I actually think that it's okay for kids to be on the f- watch something on the phone when they're in a the car. I just remember what my kids did back in the day when there were no phones and no entertainment. I mean, there were constant fights over, you're on my space. She put her leg on my space. <laughs> or, you know, nonstop battles. So I'm not sure that the phone is a bad thing in the right. car. And that's a time when, you know, unless you want to have a conversation, then it's a different story. But most little kids are just sitting there being bored and then doing throwing things at each other. Yeah. Nasty. 
And do you have any complicated feelings about your your daughter running YouTube, which has seen as has a big role in you know what kids are doing and how they're growing up and how they're developing and seeing themselves and the stuff they're seeing, et cetera. I mean, there's YouTube has a lot of problems. I mean, it's great in many ways, but it has a lot of problems too. So I'm actually really proud of her as CEO because she is trying to make a big difference in changing all of that and making sure that YouTube will be safe for kids. I mean, she's got five. So I think that's really important to her. The question that she's dealing with, she's not alone. It's the whole world is dealing Mm -hmm. with it, is like, what do you do about free speech? And what do you do about allowing people to publish videos about things that they feel strongly about but might be offensive to other people? And I don't think anybody's got the answer yet. Nobody wants to have a censor in chief. No. But I mean, sort of like what we have, what we see in China. I don't think anybody wants that. But on the other hand, people don't want to have all these terrible videos that are being posted. So the question is, where's a happy medium here? Yeah. She's working on it. I mean, she's very involved and very aware. And I don't think that anybody so far has the answer. But there has to be, from my perspective as a mother, there has to be some control. And especially of any kind of media targeting kids to make sure that there aren't things on there that are in any way offensive. Yeah, but, well, it's, it's, it is weird when you think about the internet. It's, there's, there's very few guardrails like there is in the real world. You know, you have like the little kids playground, the big kids playground, then the field or whatever. Right. And then the internet is the internet. That's right. The internet is this sort of play field where all kinds of sometimes good and sometimes Everybody's nasty things. Everybody's on the things. same field. Yeah. They're all on the same field. In the schools, they have, you know, there's protective uh, software in the, or protective stuff in the schools. So you can't access yeah. a lot of that. And you can put that on your phone, actually. There's ways to protect your kid on the phone. But you're right. Remember, I come from Berkeley. That's went to school at Berkeley. That was sort of the home of free speech, the free speech mm-hmm. movement in the 1960s. And now at Berkeley, it's just the opposite. People don't want to hear what the other side is saying. Right. And there's all been all these demonstrations. I mean, some violent about don't bring that person on oh, campus. Oh, Milo Yiannopoulos and other people like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think what Susan is dealing with on a regular basis is this question of like, what's okay for people to post? And she doesn't want to be the censor in chief. They're working on trying to figure out how to do it in a way that is fair. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of, it's such a fire hose of information. It never stops. I think the statistics say there's 1 billion education views on YouTube every day. That's just education. Yeah. It doesn't include the kitty cats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The other thing I wanted to talk about again, money in a different way though, but this place and being so affluent. Has the explosion of wealth here, do you think, been detrimental to kids and or more broadly the culture here because you talk about in berkeley yes in the 60s this is yeah. a very different place it was obviously a very different time yes and i was also but you also think about the kind of the roots of silicon valley was all a lot in counterculture yes and now it is the culture and there's so much just money here now it feels like the drivers have changed therefore the people have changed therefore their kids have changed i think there's some truth to what you're saying there's a lot of people in the world, it's everywhere. People think that happiness comes from material wealth. So if you're going to get that car, you can get the house, you're going to yeah. get all that, then you'll be happy. By that standard, Silicon Valley should be really happy. And should guess what? Should be the happiest place on earth. So I don't want to <laughs> pop your bubble here. <laughs> but there's a lot of very unhappy people. There seems to be a correlation between wealth and unhappiness. I think what happens is too much money brings out some of the worst characteristics in people. For children, it's also really bad because they're like, oh, I'm never going to be able to be like my dad or my mom. Mm-hmm. I'll never be able to achieve at those levels. And especially if they've got these snowplow parents or these helicopter parents, we need to navigate Silicon Valley in a different way, in a better way. And the kids need to be reassured that no matter who they are, what they are, they can their career of choice can be their career of choice and not the choice of their parents. Yeah. That's a it's really that's why it's been a difficult time for a lot of kids. A lot of because well, it was in Palo Alto there was that spate of um suicides. Suicides. A lot of the kids that committed suicide were kids who felt trapped. They could never be successful in their own way. And a lot of them did have psychological issues. The schools are totally focused on it now, so they try to prevent anything and yeah. you know, have more caring attitude. I would say that the happiest place on earth seems to be, or the happier places on earth, seem to be places where people are not as wealthy, yeah. where they're focused on relationships you know, what good does it do for you to have this, you know, Mercedes Benz or fancy car without friends? Who cares, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, friends, yeah. it's all about relationships and friends and helping other people. Money somehow is an impediment in many cases. Yeah. Well, following on from that, I thought one of the, the things that stuck out to me in the book, you said on divorce. So, basically, avoid it if at all possible. Especially if you have children. People just throw up their hands like, oh, I'm going to get rid of him or her. 
and then my problem will be solved. Yeah. That's the beginning of your real problems. The model you're setting for your kids when you get a divorce is, I can't work things out. I don't know how to resolve things. I have no grit. I have no social skills. I just have to get out of this. You see all these couples fighting like crazy over all kinds of irrelevant, silly things. And many of them are, of course, fighting about the kids that they seem to have forgotten about when they first decided to get a divorce. Yeah. I think the divorce rates are lower in some countries, but here in the United States, the divorce rate is about 50%. Yeah, it's roughly that in the UK, I think. So if we can, if we can help people understand that they need to prevent this and not just think about, oh, I'll get a divorce if I can't stand it, I think that would be better. It's like preventing a disease. It's better to prevent cancer than it is to try to cure it once yeah. you get it. I see so many miserable people and kids who are miserable because of their parents' divorce. It's, yeah. it's really sad. I mean, because obviously Anne had a very public divorce. That must have been... That was very difficult for everybody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I, I don't... That's not a good model, of course. You know, anybody in that position should be encouraged to, to work it out. You talk about trying to make yourself obsolete. Yes. So I want my child to be able to able to do what they want to do without me being there to help them. They should be able to act independently, do what they need to do. I mean, one of the things that they used, my kids used to do when they were little was they would get their own breakfast. And that meant at the bottom shelf of the pantry, there were lots of boxes of cereal. Yeah. They could pick the cereal they wanted. They poured it into a bowl, which was also in a bottom shelf. They could get the milk out of the refrigerator, which was also in a small carton. They could pour it themselves and turn on the TV themselves. So this was just the beginning of the day. You know, a lot of people may do, perhaps they don't want their kids to eat cereal, or I don't know what they want them to eat, but that was just an easy way for me to empower the kids. They only had certain shows that they could watch on TV. Mr. Rogers was one of them. I'm sorry, he's Mr. not, yeah, not I remember there Mr. anymore. Rogers, yeah. I miss Mr. Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> now we have Blippy. I don't know if you know about Blippy. I'm not familiar with Blippy. He's a YouTube guy, but he's, he's in that same kind of universe. Oh, well, Mr. Rogers' is, universe. Well, then I would like Blippy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should promote him. <laughs> Just getting back to this whole trick thing. Mm. It Trick is for every aspect of life. So it works in the workplace too. The question is, why are some companies more creative and more successful than others? It depends on how you treat your employees. You know, if they're, you and treat them like, you know, you're buying their soul for eight hours and after that they're going to go home, they're going to just do the minimum. They're going to do what they have to do. There are some companies that I've heard who have heat monitors in the seats to see how often the people are actually sitting in the seat so they can monitor right. their work productivity. You know, you want to hire the best people you can, trust them and respect them and empower them. And then they're going to do all kinds of amazing things for you. They'll be passionate about your company. Well, it's funny. You talked about in the book about Steve Jobs and how he, I'm reading the, his, Lisa's book. Yes. Which I don't know if you've read, which is... I've read it. Not only that, I was there when it was happening. Oh, really? She was my student in my class. Right. 
Oh, know? yeah, of course. Right, yeah, right, he right. used to come in my class and sit down on the floor and watch. That was when he was in between his two companies. Between jobs. Between jobs, between companies. Um, he didn't have a lot to do. And that book is pretty beautifully written, but quite brutal. Yes. Her life and upbringing and how he treated her oftentimes. But you talk about how you treat people. And he was, of course, even at Apple, a kind of a notorious, not a nice guy. He was not a nice guy. But there were moments when he was really nice. And I think that comes across in the book, too. He flipped a lot between the nice moments and the not nice moments. And you didn't know what you were getting. Why did you apologize so much to your kids growing up? How did, did I say that in the book? Mm-hmm. You seem like you did apologize regularly. I did, because I made a lot of mistakes. As a parent, you make mistakes. And I, remember, I was doing this just from a gut reaction. Mm. I wasn't reading any books on how to parent. I wasn't doing any of that stuff. The only book I had was Dr. Spock, who told me when to take their temperature and stuff. Right. If I made a mistake, I wanted them to know. And then also, I wanted to model that. I wanted them to also be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. And then that also facilitated taking a risk. If you do something and then it doesn't work out, right. say you're sorry. And I st- that's still my rule today. Kids need to know that you're a human being and not just a... Even though you're mom and dad, mom is a special category, dad's a special category, mm-hmm. you're still a human being and you yeah, still yeah. make mistakes. And you had them write a lot. I thought that was oh, interesting. That was it. They Yes. They had to write little diaries every day about what they did. If they were bad, they had to write a little essay about what they did that was bad and explain why they did it and how they were going to change. And I was really into writing. because, And I still see that as, as a way to reflect on what is happening today. I think people that journal, they understand themselves better. You can look back at your journal. They wrote diaries, little diaries. Whenever we took trips, they had a trip diary. They would write about it. Also, in my classes, when I never really sent kids to the office. I was not one of those teachers that did that. I would always keep them after school. And then they had to write about what they had done and how they would change it and why they, right. what they had done was inappropriate. That worked all the time. And As opposed to suspension or oh, whatever. Suspension, it doesn't work. I mean, it terrifies them. I find that my method is softer and it's more effective. Just think about it. When you write, you reflect. And when you reflect, you, it helps you understand your life and where you're going and what you're doing. And that's what I'm trying to do when I get kids to write and when right. I got my children to write. I won't promise this is the last point, but I'm getting there. Just <laughs> on the... Um, this idea of purpose. Yes. And started 23andMe, which obviously has a very clear... It's a clear goal. Clear goal. She wants to help everybody take charge of their health and their life and live better lives and happier lives and be illness-free. Janet? Janet is trying to help everybody understand how diet relates to your health. And right now she's in Japan studying Japanese diet and Japanese longevity. And the question is, why is it that the Japanese don't get fat and they live a long time? Mm. And one of the things she's discovered, it's fascinating. You go to a nursery school in Japan, those little kids, they're eating their snack in porcelain plates 
and they all nobody seems to be having a temper tantrum about what they're eating and it's multiple types of food and yeah. it's not pizza and pasta right which That's is this ma- typical cafeteria typical cafeteria this is healthy food so they yeah. start out with these habits so yeah janet's in japan she's on a fellowship then with susan 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 was trying to democratize um the world giving people a voice well she started out by having to happen to have a a garage that well she, she started out with the garage And what she was trying to do when she started out with the garage is she was trying to pay her mortgage. And so, and there were just two guys that needed a garage and they seemed to fill the bill on paying the mortgage. And it just happened to be Larry and Sergey. And it took her about six six months to realize that Larry and Sergey might be onto something. This Google thing, you know, she was using it. And then one day at work, she couldn't use it. For some reason, it was down. And then she realized, oh, my God, this turns out to be useful. That moment she realized, oh, this is actually, yeah. This is actually a tool that people might want. Yeah. Anyway, at that point, she joined the company. The main thing she was focused on was like, great tool. So how are they going to make some money? Mm. And then she came up with ideas for advertising. Right. It worked out pretty well. Yeah. She became the number one advertising executive, I think, in the world. By... I guess by adver- well, it was the ideas and what she was doing, right. and I mean, and then from the advertising, she went into being the CEO of YouTube. Right? Are you optimistic? So talking about the crisis in parenting, where we started, oh. and you know, being in this place where a lot of this these very powerful forces are being created and sent out into the world, and making it harder for people to be as you say, relaxed and trust themselves and for kids to be kids, etc. Well, in general, I'm an optimist. And I believe in the goodness of human beings and mm. I believe that we can succeed. But one of the things that I'm trying to do is change the way we think of learning so that kids can be more empowered and so more kids can have a, at least part of a program that is like my program. So I came up with this um, nonprofit that was started in January of 2019, and it's called globalmoonshots.org. Okay. And the goal of this nonprofit is to teach other teachers and parents how to give kids more agency and more control of their learning. And so that I realize that the system, people have been trying to do this for a long time in many different forms. And so... I say, just do it 20% of the time. The other 80%, you can stick to the old traditional style, but 20% of the time, give kids an opportunity to go for a moonshot project that they care about, something that they want to work on in school. And the 20% can be any way your school district or state or whatever wants to do it. But unless we give kids some opportunity for agency, we're going to end up with a lot of memorization a lot of kids that are miserable because they're doing nothing besides preparing for the test and they don't see their place in the world as being a creative, innovative person. And this, arguably the stakes are higher than ever. The stakes are higher than ever because also the other thing that my journalism program does is teach kids to recognize fake news. When you write a story, you know what to look for when you read a story. Mm. I'm working with the museum in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. 
And they have a lot of resources, and one of them, a lot of them are targeting how to figure out whether it's fake news or right. not. I was more referring to this idea around kids be, having agency, etc., in a world where it's kind of dramatic automation and all of these forces that, again, that are being pushed out to the world here. Right. A lot of the jobs today just won't be here. Right. Well, just like you said earlier, you know, there's so many different programming languages and pretty soon there's not going to be any programmers needed that it'll just be done by AI. Yeah. That is a concern. But I think that human beings are innovative overall. So I'm optimistic that they'll figure out a solution, but they're only going to figure out a solution if you give them an opportunity to be creative. Yeah. If you keep telling them what's right and what's wrong all the time. They're never going to be creative. So I don't know in the book if I talked about George Danzig, my neighbor next door. Yes, 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 you did. You did. He's kind of the father of the computer industry. Mm. He solved the mathematical problem. He was a typical late-to-class mathematics student who came into a lecture hall and saw this problem on the board, and he realized he had missed class. Mm. And... So he wrote the problem down, and then he went home, and he thought that was the homework. He worked on it all night. He came back the next day and said to the professor, this is the hardest homework problem I've ever had. And it turned out the professor had put the on the board because nobody had been able to solve that in the world. And he solved it. And what this is it, like one of the most important algorithms for the Internet? One of the most important algorithms for the Internet. Would he have tried if he knew it was unsolvable. No. No. So as long as we keep telling kids that problems are unsolvable and that they have to memorize what we've already said. Or removing problems before they arise. Or we remove the problems before they arise in the snowplow parent, Mm -hmm. then we're never going to get the creativity we need. You're not retiring. Is that what you're saying? No. I'm not (laughs) retiring. No, no, and no, no. (laughs) So first of all, I love being with kids. And then also, what else would I do? You know, I might drive everybody crazy, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then just lastly, is it kind of weird circulating in these circles, which I imagine you circulate in now? Because, I mean, given who your daughters are and who they know, and, you know, starting a nonprofit here, I imagine you're not going to be any... There's no shortage of billionaires here. No shortage. They're everywhere. Billionaire on the next bush. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Is it kind of weird? Because obviously, if you were here since almost half a century, I mean, this is... It is kind of weird, because before, this was known as the farm. You know, Stanford was the farm. Nothing happened. The cows were on the hill, mooing and so forth. And now we have all these billionaires driving around in their Teslas. Yeah, it is kind of unusual. But I I think we have to accept these billionaires, because they're not going anywhere. They're just building bigger and bigger (laughs) houses. (laughs) And doing more and more crazy things. And do, do... Any of the kind of captain of industry types seek you out and, or kind of try to support you or want to hear about your ideas, especially around... Because obviously, a lot of these people, what you are saying is right up their alley in terms of how they think, view the world and how they made it. Yeah, I do meet with a lot of them. Just like you say, you know, I, I have multiple circles. So one of them is a the kids. I love being there. But then also sometimes I'm going to social gatherings where they're all there, all the captains. So I 
take this an opportunity to tell them all about my global moonshots and see whether they would like to help support that. And so one of the things I'd like them to do is to be more generous and philanthropic. And I think education is at the basis of everything. Mm. So if we can give all kids an opportunity to be empowered and good students, no matter where they start out in life, I think we're going to make an important change for the 21st century. And that is it. Two pods in a weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I had a really good time talking with Esther. As I mentioned, there is a piece in this weekend's Sunday Times magazine. If you want to read more about that, that is there, which is based on this interview and also her book. I'm going to take a rest now. Actually, I'm not. This weekend, I'm driving down to Los Angeles to go to the Milken Conference in Beverly Hills, where all the big hitters go. It's like Beverly. It's like um, Davos, but in the sun. All the kind of the great and the good will be there, and I'm going to be talking to a lot of them, some of them, for this pod. So keep your ears peeled for that one, and I will talk to you next week. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.